Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, we're talking about the rise of white supremacist movements and how to combat them. How do you talk to a white supremacist, and why would you want to? I used to go to protest, you know, most of my teenage years. I've thrown bottles at these people, I've shouted at them, but what I've realized is decades on, we're still at this point. It hasn't changed anything. So for me personally, I wanted to try something different. That's filmmaker Dia Han. Her Emmy award-winning documentary, White Right, Meeting the Enemy, got its Canadian premiere on TVO in September. But who exactly is the enemy? Whether you call them neo-Nazis, alt-right speakers, or the American white nationalist movement, Han spent much of 2017 meeting with them face-to-face. She wanted to figure out how they think, how they recruit people, and try to understand what would lead someone to live a life of hate. Like Brian Culpepper. When she met Brian, he was doing PR for a neo-Nazi organization called the National Socialist Movement. Uh, Then in the course of uh, editing the film, I get an email from Brian, and he says, look, I need to talk to you, I need to tell you something. So I call him, and he tells me that he has uh, resigned. But part of the reason he's left is that it was difficult for him to reconcile the way I was being treated uh, by people within his movement. Wow, just when you thought people's minds can't be changed. And warning, some of the language used in the clips are pretty strong. Stay with us. Thank you, Dia, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Well, I I always like to kind of ask directors uh, uh, about the titles of their films. Uh, And yours is called White Right, Meeting the Enemy. Why did you decide to uh, use that title? Well, um, my initial thought was actually just to have uh, Meeting the Enemy. But then uh, the, the commissioning editor and, and the, our collaborators basically at the TV station in, in England, which is ITV, uh, wanted to make it a little bit more specific and, and sort of indicate you know, what that enemy might be. So that's why they added white right to it. But to me, you know, why, why meeting the enemy? Because that's the entire gesture of the film is, is both me um, sort of challenging myself to sit down with people who I, you know, have have considered most of my life to be my enemy, but also to see whether it's possible for people who consider me to be the enemy, whether it's possible for us to sit down and and get to the human beings uh, behind sort of our politics and behind our um, our very strong feelings and and also dislikes of each other, whether it's possible to connect with each other, you know, on on a human level. Yeah, and and we'll talk about some of the individuals you uh, interview a bit in a bit. Uh, but the, the crux of the film is uh, racism, uh, judgments based on people's looks. And as a person of color, did you ever uh, were you concerned about uh, you know your appearance when you uh, met uh, these people for the first time? Well, I knew that um, the way that I look uh, and and the background that I come from is is a huge problem for a lot of these people. And and I also have to say that you know. When I started making the film, I reached out to endless numbers of of activists within the white power movement and also various organizations and various groups within it in in the U.S. And the vast majority of people uh, refused to meet with me. 
So in that sense, you know, the people who actually made it into the film, it's sort of a self-selecting process in and of itself. You know, see, those are people who at least uh, could sort of stomach sitting with somebody like me. So was I worried about my appearance? I knew that that's the biggest problem that they have. Um, so, but, but that was also the point. The point was, you know, is it possible to, to sit down with each other, you know, in spite of, of that, you know, very deep dislike or, or hatred that they carry for people who look like me and people who believe the things that I believe and people who come also, because the problem that they had with me was not just the fact that I'm a brown woman, but also that I come from a Muslim family. My name is Dia Khan. I'm an activist and filmmaker. When I was six years old, my father took me to my first rally against racism and fascism. I grew up in Norway, where white skinhead gangs terrorized our small Muslim community. My father told us things would change, but extremism and racism are on the rise again in Europe and America. So it was sort of a, a double uh, problem. Actually, it wasn't just a double problem. I, I sort of tick every box on their list of, of people that they absolutely despise. So I, I'm also a feminist. I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm also a liberal. I am an anti-fascist and an anti-racist activist, you know, for, for most of my life. <clears throat> you know, I, I believe in, you know, human rights and dignity for all people. Um, so, so, you know, I, I sort of, I think, satisfied a lot of their... Um, their, their, their hysteria and problems uh, against people who, who have all those sort of credentials, I should say. So for the, one, for the individuals that you spoke to, what was in it for them, I guess, by talking to you? Well, I think, uh, as I say, most of them did not want to speak to me. So finally, the person that responded um, was uh, Jeff Scoop, and he is the, the leader of National Socialist Movement in America, which is the largest neo-Nazi organization in the US. You know, we're a white civil rights organization here in America. We're white nationalists. Just as Martin Luther King did for the blacks, you know, our mission is pretty much the same. And he uh, initially, he wrote back and he said no. Uh, that he wasn't interested, you know, doesn't have the time and, you know, doesn't sound like something that he would like to do. And I was very, very clear with everyone that I, I approached. I would tell them about myself up front. I didn't want to sort of, you know, trick anyone into agreeing to the interview and then sort of surprise them with the fact that, oh, look, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's you know, a brown person. Um, <laughs> and, and so I explained everything to him. He said no. Uh, and then I took that as a bit of an opening because <laughs> at least he responded. <laughs> And at least he took the time to say no. So I thought, okay, well, here, at least, you know, there, there's a tiny, tiny opening. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing, actually for several months. And then he finally uh, agreed and said, look, um, you, we can go ahead and do this, but you are going to have to come to my town. Uh, there's a specific motel that he told me about. Uh, I would have to rent a room there, and, and he would come there. And I would only get one hour. Uh, is is the time I would get, and after that, you know, I I need to just disappear and and stop uh, pestering him, um, and and so I, I did exactly that. We met up, uh, and I was very apprehensive and very nervous once I first got to that motel room because then suddenly, you know, all, all these because I was so uh, just happy and relieved that somebody had finally agreed to speak to me. But then also, <laughs> once you realize it's about to happen and you're about to meet the first ever neo-Nazi in your life, you also start thinking of all the different scenarios of, you know, what if he turns up with other people? What if they're armed? You know, what if they try to, you know, do something? What do I do? Because it was just myself and, and, and my colleague 
uh, just the two of us, no security, no nothing. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he did show up, and he did show up alone, just as, you know, um, discussed. And uh, the one hour passed, and then, you know, four more hours passed. So at the end of five hours, um, he basically said that I was welcome to, to continue filming with him, and that also he was going to a rally. Uh, in a month or so after that, um, and that I was welcome to come and, and film with them there. And that ended up being the Charlottesville uh, Unite the Right rally in, 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 uh, in America, which ultimately turned deadly. And he has an interesting belief system. I mean, he at one point compares himself to Martin Luther King <laughs> yeah. uh, for white people. Do you, can you just explain like his, like his why he thinks that way? Well, he thinks, and his group and, and many others like him, they basically believe that... Uh, white people are under threat in America, and they are under threat because there, are, there is a demographic shift that is taking place right now, which means that within the next 30 or so years, uh, white people will, be, will become a minority in America. <clears throat> so they believe that because of policies like affirmative action or, or any kind of uh, quota systems that might be in place in, in you know, various uh, environments in America, you know, when it comes to people of color or even you know, uh, for women, for example, they believe that white people, in particular white men, are losing out in this new, diverse, modern, multicultural, plural world. And, and also uh, any kind of, I mean, this is, you know, he, he feels this, but any kind of you know, social support or any kind of economic support from the state, he also believes that people within minorities are benefiting from that and not white people and and so so taking that premise with him you know one of the conversations that I had with him is look you know if if that is true and you know maybe that is true to an extent that still doesn't change the fact that your social and economic sort of grievances that you're talking about resemble the the grievances and and the the sense of discrimination that people of color and immigrants and people that you hate experience so you're actually in the same boat as the people that you you say you hate you have far more in common uh, as a working class white man or as a poor white man with people from immigrant communities than you do with Donald Trump than you do with rich white guys you know and 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 that kind of he sort of agrees with, but but kind of resents the fact that I'm, I'm making that comparison, but also kind of gets it. And and so that's one of the things he was also saying that you know I, I've you know I've never thought about some of these things, and I've never no one's really spoken with me in a kind of relaxed, comfortable, open environment. You know, because usually he's he's used to encounters being very aggressive and and very kind of hostile and judgmental. When, when, you, when you spoke to him and when you spoke to uh, someone like Jared Taylor, who's another uh, uh, leader in the white power movement, um, was, it, was it difficult to contain uh, some of your, your feelings to what, what they were arguing? I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I was sitting there kind of gritting my teeth at, uh, you know, some of the things they were describing and, and wanting to be like, oh, you're wrong. Like, and, and here's why. Was, was, that, was that challenging? It, it, in, in one way, it was challenging. It, it is, it's always difficult to sit with people who are, you know, pretty much telling you to your face that people like you either don't deserve to exist and if you deserve to exist, you, 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 you need to be, you are inferior 
to everybody else and, and that any kind of discrimination or abuse against you is, is sort of justified because you look the way that you do. So it's very difficult to, to sit there and listen to things like that. Um, but on the other hand, I, I also, that's no news in a way. Like, like in, in, it's not surprising to me that a Nazi or, or, or a you know, white supremacist thinks things like that. So when I started making the film, I already knew what I was getting myself into. I already knew that these people hold these views. Um, so <clears throat> it's always difficult to hear it, you know, straight to your face. But then again, I, I've, I've had experiences of racism on and off sort of most of my life. So, so none of this is new to me. Um, but what I was very conscious and clear about is that even if they say things like that, and I know that they're going to say things like that, I'm not going to fall for it in some ways because they're also saying things like that because they want to get a reaction out of me. They want me to become either really angry or they want me to become emotional in some sort of way or sad. And once I do that, in a way, they have me where they would like to have me. And I did not want the conversation to be directed and, and, and uh, continued on their terms. So, so, so therefore, I think if I would have gotten emotional in, in return or, or kind of angry and aggressive in return, the dynamic that they're used to would suddenly be back on the table and then they know how to benefit from that. They also know how to then uh, play up and play down their grievances and how they can then speak to their audience through my film. And I was not interested in allowing anyone to use my film as their recruitment platform, uh, which is why I constantly kept the conversation personal and kept the conversation as intimate and as close to them as possible, rather than it becoming about my feelings being hurt. At my last meeting with Jeff, I decide to show him something. It's a photo of me with my father, taken at an anti-extremism rally when I was six years old. So that's my dad. Oh, wow. And that's me. <laughs> People who represent what you represent made a six-year-old child feel hated and unwanted and unwelcome and ugly. The movement that you are a part of has this type of real-life effect on people like me. How does it make you feel? Uncomfortable. I don't like it. You don't like it. I don't think anybody should have to feel like that. What we stand for, what we believe, is not about oppressing anybody. It's not about hurting anybody. I don't like hearing hearing that sort of thing. You also spent time with uh, another um, uh, member of the White Power Movement named Ken Parker. Yes. Uh, and uh, just to say a little bit about him, he uh, spent time in the Navy. Um, he, he, when you were with him, you were in his home. Uh, he was making racist flyers uh, that he was going to spread at a, um, in a Jewish community with his girlfriend. And I was struck by the, the girlfriend. Um, you know, she was uh, there. And it, I wonder to what extent she and, and other members uh, of the uh, family of uh, white, white supremacists, what role do they play in these, uh, in these uh, white supremacist lives? Uh, the overwhelming majority, I would say, I mean, some, some of them, the, their partners and their families hold the same views. But I would say that that was not the case with most of them. Most of the guys that I met, their families and their spouses actually uh, were against it or, or, or were not as convinced as, as they are. Uh, and, and I find that really interesting. And, and Ken, you know, the, the young man that you're speaking about, you know, not only does Crystal sort of have much, much softer views than him, um, but also, you know, when I ask him about his mother, you know, is his mother proud of him? 
Yeah, she's proud of uh, my military experience and what I'm doing in school. She's not necessarily proud of what I'm doing in the movement. I've worked with now these guys, you know, white supremacists, but I've also um, done a film about uh, jihadis and young men who are radicalized in Muslim communities in the West. And I would say one of the kind of commonalities between both extremist groups is that when they are recruited into these movements, it's a very kind of tactical and a very deliberate uh, strategy that these groups have, which is to cut these men off, slowly cut them off from their existing support systems. So, so their families, their existing friends, their whatever uh, community circles that they're in, they slowly, slowly start removing them from them and to the point where the only family and community and brotherhood that they're left with is the movement itself. Uh, because that makes a very, very, first of all, it builds a tremendous kind of deep sense of loyalty between the, these men and the cause and, and the other members in the groups, but also it makes it excruciatingly difficult for them to eventually leave, if any of them leave, because they've lost all their, their kind of social networks. Um, and that's something that a lot of these groups actively do. The other thing that they are actively doing, the white power movement, which I found really frightening, I have to say, and I wasn't able to address it very much in the film because there were so many other things to include, um, <clears throat> is how this movement is very actively targeting uh, ex-military people. So mm. ex-soldiers like Ken. I would say about 80% of the men that I met with uh, across the various groups, because obviously there are differences within the movement. You've got kind of the working class guys, the sort of neo-Nazis and the boots on the ground. <clears throat> then you've got the kind of, you know, Jared Taylors, who, you know, kind of self-styled intellectuals and academics of the, the, the movement, kind of, you know, racist, uh, kind of science-based racists or whatever they want to call themselves. And then you've got the kind of alt-right, the kind of suit and tie brigade. Uh, but cutting across all of these kind of variations, I would say one of the constants was the incredible high numbers of ex-soldiers. That was something I, I, I found interesting as well. I, 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 and, and also this class uh, dimension too. I, uh, you know, like I, I, and what I was struggling to understand is why uh, someone from a blue collar background uh, who may hold white supremacist views would want to have anything to do with someone like Richard Spencer, who just projects this polished, privileged uh, aura about him. Uh, they just seems like polar opposites in some ways. They are. They are. And actually, that's one of the conversations I also, you know, uh, would have with some of the guys is, you know, I don't get why you have these alliances with each other because it doesn't, again, it doesn't make any sense. You actually have nothing in common other than your white skin. With Richard Spencer, there was a, I mean, a lot of the men around him are actually working class guys. And what I would see in their kind of interactions is it seems very much like it's this sort of aspirational thing that a lot of you know I think people in the US have so it's maybe they think they can become like Spencer one day maybe they think they can become wealthy and successful and and powerful and all of that um, because I don't know why somebody would subject themselves with with to, to that level of kind of insult and contempt that that Richard shows to his followers it's, what was interesting to me also about the, what the difference between the Spencers and uh, the Ken Parkers, um, you know, Parker and uh, I think it was another gentleman, uh, Culpepper. Yes. Uh, they they treated you pretty respectfully, uh, and even called you a friend. Yeah. To some extent, and 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 that surprised me. Me too. And I I, I kind of <laughs> wondered, but I kind of also wondered, you know, had you been a man, uh, a man of color, do you think that you might have been given the same uh, treatment? I think uh, <clears throat> I think there's definitely something to the fact that I am a woman. I think. Um, I think my I think I am less threatening to them 
uh, than a guy, you know, they would have perceived a guy to be. But I think more than uh, the difference between a man and a woman, I think it came more down to my style of engaging with them. So I think if a man would have engaged with them in the same way, then I think uh, <clears throat> I think the results would have been, if not the same, then then quite similar. Uh, it might have taken perhaps a bit longer because you know when when men are addressing other men, especially in these incredibly sort of macho uh, uh, organizations, then I do think that you know their posturing is different towards another man because it's more about kind of trying to dominate each other and impress each other in a different way than when it's a woman. Um, because I'm lower than them in, in you know both race and gender in their eyes, right? So mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I do think that uh, I had that advantage in some ways, but I do think more than anything, it's about the style of how you engage with people. And I think the fact that I was not sympathetic to them ever, I constantly challenged them and constantly uh, questioned them and tried to put um, kind of reality reality in front of them and, and explain to them the consequences of, of their their language and their actions. I decided to share some of my own experiences with him. So I show him the interview I gave to the BBC. To build a society that includes all of us where it means looking like me and looking like you. And I read him some of the racist emails I got as a result. Save a life and bin that knife into her chest. This sour cunt should be gassed, fuck off bitch, Nazi Germany did it. When I'm not here and you speak to your friends about me, would you use some of these words about me? No. Would you no. call me a sandmaker? Uh, maybe if I'm drunk. And if I told you that you calling me those words hurts my heart? I'll do my very best not to use them. Yeah? Yes. Because? Because I respect you and I don't want to hurt your feelings. I would constantly do it in in a tone of kind of empathy and, and making them truly understand that I am actually sincere about wanting to listen and I actually I actually am interested in what they have to say. I'm not there to prove my point. I'm not there to come out as the winner of the exchange. I'm there to sincerely understand. And, and that was the whole point of the film. And, and they, I think, got that. So I think it's more the approach than the gender. But I do think that, you know, superficially, yes, it, 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 it was better that I was a woman than if I would have been a bearded guy, for example, from, a, from you know, a Muslim background like me, like mine. And by telling them, you know, what you're doing is wrong, I wondered if that was sort of a, a conscious effort to try and uh, not normalize their behavior as well. Absolutely. I mean, to me, it's very important, you know, because I, I went through a lot of conversations, sort of self-doubt myself before I made the film is, you know, do I want to do this? And how do I avoid, you know, giving a platform to hate? And how do I, you know, prevent kind of how do I how do I sidestep all these pitfalls that are associated to addressing topics like this? <clears throat> and to me, it was very important to, you know, number one, not to glamorize anything that they do. Uh, and also not to normalize what they're doing uh, and to constantly be critical and constantly um, make sure that uh, my views are clear to them. But but also just my presence and my existence sort of tells them what my views are in a way as well. So, so they're constantly reminded of the fact that I am different and I am not one of them and that I do obviously don't subscribe to you know the the annihilation of of people who look like me, uh, but but beyond that, also it was important for me also to to articulate 
my my discomfort and and my uh, disapproval of their views. And and you know and Ken, you know when he when we did go in the car together and he was you know throwing out these flyers in in these kind of anti-Semitic and very hateful flyers in the Jewish neighborhood in in Florida. You know he was actually really really excited at the beginning of 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 that drive. And and by the end of the night, when we got back to his place, I mean, it, it was like it was it was like I'd like ruined his party or something. You know, he he was completely deflated and kind of like I'd ruined it for him, um, which I thought was really interesting. That he didn't st- why why that would matter to him? Why would it matter to him that I didn't like it and that it was uncomfortable for me? And why it matters is, you know, the echo chambers that you know we're all so used to. You know, it's it's very difficult when you become challenged and when somebody tells you, well, actually, look, this is actually really hurting somebody. This is when it becomes personal. When it's when it's not just this group thing and this kind of um it's easy to hate from a distance i guess and i think when somebody's in your car telling you look this you know you're doing this and this has potentially these consequences you know there's children in these houses you know the, you know what are you doing basically there are cats in these houses i couldn't believe you had a cat <laughs> i know like that was and, the one thing dogs. that i just i i could i was like wait what he uh, cats I have cats, and I mean, you know, I assume cats disapprove cats. of Nazis. <laughs> well, they yeah. <laughs> cats disapprove What's of a lot job? of people, but but I, I I was so kind of like taken aback by that because you know you would assume the Nazis not going to have a nurturing side, but here, there you go. No, but 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 see, but see, but that's the thing though is is you know I think I used to think things like that as well is that these guys are just monsters, they're just evil, they just have these kind of monstrous views and monstrous acts that they indulge in, but you know the fact of the matter is is you know. You know, they are just people. Can you just talk about where some of these guys are right now, the ones who have uh, left the movement? A couple of months ago, um, Ken got in touch with me. When I left Ken, uh, this is the the same young man who who threw the flyers out the door, and he has harassed and and tormented Muslims in his, his community. I mean, he has... Uh, you know, harassed the local mosques and Muslims and, and Syrian refugees and absolutely with a passion hates Muslims. Uh, it's part of the reason he joined the army, he even told me, uh, after 9-11 is because he, 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 he wanted to go to those countries because he was going to take care of Muslims. So he, he, that was his kind of very deep, deep feelings about Muslims. So when I left him, and he, he even in the film, he says, well, I consider you to be a friend because, you know, you've been respectful to me and, you know, I, 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 I don't like what you're saying and I disagree with your worldview, but, you know, I, I, but I, I kind of, you know, respect you because you've been respectful to me. There is, a, uh, there is an African-American pastor in his apartment block that he then engaged with. He, he uh, is part of an all-black congregation, uh, and so he invited Ken to come along. And so Ken went there. Ken spoke about his... Because uh, Ken also used to be a part of the Ku Klux Klan, basically. So he's not just a neo-Nazi. He's kind of... He's been a part of the movement for a really, really, really long time and been a part of all the kind of hideous groups that you can imagine. So he explains this to the entire black congregation in this church. And at the end of apparently his visit there, people actually came up and hugged him and said that it took a lot of courage for him to come to a place like that and to be so open and so honest. And, and I mean, they, they, they were not, I mean, they condemned his views, but they didn't condemn him. And from that, something happened to him. And so he calls me up and he says, I've completely left 
I've left the group, I've left the movement, and he has this humongous swastika tattoo on his chest, and he said, and I'm going to remove that. And he said, the hate was killing me from the inside. And he said, thank you for not giving up on me, and thank you for still being there for me. I never, ever, ever would have imagined that he was going to leave. It's 2018, and uh, I guess it's been a year since uh, Charlottesville and since your film uh, came out. And um, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on just the state of the far right today. I think, you know, as as heartwarming as some of the experiences that I've had have been, I think, you know, it's very important not to underestimate um, the threat that this movement poses. I I think that the far right is absolutely on the rise everywhere, uh, including in Canada. Um, uh, We're seeing, you know, this wave of kind of fascistic worldview uh, washing over all of Europe again. And I think, you know, and also I think that the extreme right and their views is now also becoming normalized because of a lot of populist politicians in in a lot of western countries now who are who are based in, and including you know leaders like Donald Trump who are making those views okay i mean even the guys that i spoke to you know were very clear about the fact that people like these have been on the margins of society for a very long time neo nazis have been around and hate groups have been around for a very long time but even they say that we now see that our talking points are being spoken in the White House. What we absolutely have an obligation to do now, all of us on the other side of this, is to become active and to ensure, you know, horrible things and horrible violence doesn't just erupt out of nowhere. It's slow, slow, slow steps of dehumanizing each other that eventually allows that to happen. One of kind of the the strategies that I think we should apply is to try and ensure that men who are drawn to this type of movement, who are vulnerable to these types of messages, that we get to them before white supremacists and extremists get to them and recruit them. So I think that, you know, the social and economic Uh, underpinnings of this movement, but also some of the emotional and psychological underpinnings of what makes young men susceptible to these movements, we have to, as a society, try and get better at addressing them so that we don't lose more and more men to this. And that's not going to happen just by shouting at them and just by banning them and just by no platforming them. I know what it feels like to be demonized and dehumanized and and to be stereotyped. And I refuse to do that to somebody else. I refuse to lose my own humanity just because somebody wants to uh, deny me mine. Yeah. Well, listen, dear, this is a really great conversation and I, I really enjoyed the film and I hope everyone sees it. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. That's the podcast. Join us next Thursday for a brand new episode. You can stream White Right Meeting the Enemy right now on TVO.org. Check out the show notes for more information. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you got a friend who's into smart talk about film and current affairs, tell them. We want to hear from you, too. Write us at ondocs at TVO.org. And follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producers Chantel Berganza and Matthew O'Mara. Our production support coordinator, Caitlin Plummer. Our podcast manager, Hannah Sung and all the people behind the scenes here at TVO who help make this show possible. We'll catch you at the next screening.